Good evening, one. It is 7.30 p.m. on a beautiful Tuesday night. Thank you for being here. I forget which number class this is, but this is the course on the resurrection and vocation. Right? That's the title of this particular course, The Resurrection and Vocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Lord, you have defeated death by death and bestowed on us the gift of eternal life. So keep us always joyful in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Thomas the Apostle, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so the resurrection and vocation. Vocation, we're trying to understand it in a broad sense. So this is not so much a talk on how you find out if you're supposed to be married or celebrate, because most of us in this room are frankly beyond that, that point. All right, a little late for me to decide if I want to get married or not. All right, so, and then secondly, because if, if you pay attention to a number of the prayers at Mass, especially as we get later into the weeks of Easter, it has a lot of language like, like uh, as we continue to rejoice in the resurrection of your Son, May our constant pondering of these mysteries gain for us eternal joy. Or as we offer the sacrament of the resurrection of your Son, right? That's the Eucharist, the risen Christ. May participation in this keep us constant in grace. So you just see the church trying to tell God, give us the grace as we ponder the resurrection to stay faithful and joyful in holiness. Again, not to get nerdy about the Roman Missal, but as you go through the prayers throughout the year, again, in Advent and Christmas, not so much. That's very much about incarnation and the end of the world and all this. In Lent, you notice in Lent, starts out, it's all very much about penance. But then you'll notice, right, especially what we call Passion, from Passion Sunday on, fifth Sunday of Lent on, Lots of talk about looking towards the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection, because this is the heart, pondering and talking about the cross and resurrection is the heart of the Christian vocation. So I'd like to read to you a resurrection account, of course. We're trying to focus everything on accounts of our Lord at the time of the resurrection. So this comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 24, all right? Luke 24, starting on verse 36, going through verse 48. Luke 24, verse 36 through 48. Now this is our Lord appearing on Easter Sunday, this is the narrative in St. Luke's Gospel after the road to Emmaus and in the same instance where our Lord conveys forgiveness of sins, right? So it's in that same appearance. 
Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Right? That's the greeting of the risen Christ. Peace. Just as a sidebar, and this is good for occasion, the Lord says, My peace I give you, my peace I leave to you, not as the world gives it. Right? What is the peace he leaves? Resurrection peace. Passing through death into life. Christians have peace because they pass through death into life confidently. They know that. We don't fear death because we pass through death to life. That's that peace. But they were startled and frightened and supposed they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do questions arise in your hearts? Again, this is why I think Jesus is sort of the winsome comedian. (laughs) What's got you bothered? I said, we just saw you screw, crucified and scourged and all, right? That's why. We are, not, we are very accustomed to seeing people scourged and crucified. We are not regularly accustomed to seeing those same people rise from the dead and just show up. That's why we're stuck, right? Okay. Why are you troubled and why do questions rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I my safe. Handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see I have. Okay, a real reminder. Before, earlier in the day, to Mary Magdalene, don't touch. Later, after, Emmaus, breaking of the bread, sacrament, handle me. Right, handle. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered. This is a, you will find Bible scholars comment on this translation endlessly. No one is really quite sure how to translate this original Greek phraseology. I happen to, again, I'm not the most expert, but what I've read on the commentaries, this seems to be a good translation in English. They were still disbelieving for joy and wondered, right? The newness of this, the joyful shock of it all. Again, we are conditioned by two millennia of Christian history, our whole faith and a lot of cultural markers are centered around someone rising from the dead that was not the experience of the Christians All right. he said to them have you anything here to eat as a sidebar this is my favorite line in scripture All right. what does the resurrected Jesus want to do have something to eat All right. right. then my not favorite they gave him a piece of broiled fish (laughs) Pass through the scourge of death and glory and resurrection. You got broiled fish? Okay, all right. Anyway, okay. Enough of that silliness, right? They're disbelieving for joy and wondered, and he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, and this is the heart of Christian vocation, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me And the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. There is the heart of the resurrection and vocation. To open one's life, right? To have joy, the right believers have joy in the risen Christ. Now that joy can be wondering, and right, that phrase, disbelieving for joy. Just as a sidebar, St. Augustine gives the appropriate definition of theology. He called, theology is faith seeking understanding, right? And then, fides quare intellectum. Theology is faith seeking understanding. The confession of faith is a disbelieving for joy and a wondering. Wonder is a great thing. That's wondering is a tremendous thing. Disbelieving for joy. All right, young lady, I can't believe you finally asked me to marry him. That's sort of like shocking. Disbelieving for joy. And then it's the opening of the mind, right? Opening of the mind to understand the scriptures that it's written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city to your clothes with power on high. So this is where I want to move forward and go to... So that's the, that's the end of the Gospel of St. Luke. So I want to move now to the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. Because remember, St. Luke writes the Gospel of St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Excuse me. So I want to start on the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 1 through... Excuse me, verse 11. Right. Acts 1, 1 through 11. All the ones, right? Acts 1, 1, 1, 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, let's contextualize that. In the first book, that's the Gospel of St. Luke, right? That's the first book he's referring to. O Theophilius, huge debate that has never been resolved whether Theophilius, Theophilius in Greek means lover of God. Theo, God, Philius, to love, lover of God. It's always been an open question. Is Theophilius a specific person? Or is it a general name for all the believers, all the lovers of God? We don't know, right? As a super sidebar, if you want to get an excellent history of early Christianity in a narrative form, so not an academic book, in a narrative form, there's a novel called Theophilius, written by a man named Michael O'Brien. Right? It's what you would call a historical novel. In that novel, he posits that Theophilius is an actual person. And in the novel, Theophilius is St. Luke's uncle, 
who in the novel St. Luke's parents died in a plague that spurred him on to study medicine and be a physician, and his uncle Theophilus raised him in a virtuous pagan home. And so through that novel, it's tremendously well-researched in that early first century time period. So again, it is a novel, it's not an academic book, but it's incredibly, incredibly well-researched, shot through with quotations from scripture and can give you a very good idea of what that time in the world was like. All right. Now, so he's writing this about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. To them, all right, to the apostles he had chosen, he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. And sorry, this is one of the most enigmatic statements in the sacred scriptures. So he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs. We've got those in the Gospels. Appearing during the 40 days, right, which we're approaching the conclusion of those 40 days. Speaking of the kingdom of God. Well, what did he say? Right? As a sidebar, this is where we have what the church calls tradition. Big T, capital T tradition, really what we call, all right, revelation through the deposit of faith. Because for the first, at the very least, at the very, very least, if you are a believer in the early dating of the earliest gospel of St. Mark, which is earliest to be dated at about 57 AD, so 24 years after Christ. So there's no written gospel for 24 years at the very least after the resurrection. There's no letters of St. Paul. There's no book of Revelation. There's no gospel of St. John. So you can't say, well, this is the mysteries of the kingdom of God are preserved in the life of the church. That's why as a sidebar, St. Paul will say later, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4, you know how to believe, how to behave in the house of the living God, which is the church, the pillar and foundation of truth. Right. St. Paul does not say, you know how to, believe, how to behave believe in Jesus, the pillar and foundation of truth. No, in the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Right. So the mysteries of the kingdom of God are preserved in the life of the church. What is their commission? And this is why it gets essentially to vocation. Because I can make a distinction. There's fides quare, faith-seeking, understanding. Then there is the vocation, the essential heart of the Christian life. While staying with them, right, so starting in verse 4, while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem. Right, We read about that. Stay in the city. We But to wait for the promise of the Father, from which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water. But before many days, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him. Right? This is the apostles coming together with the risen Jesus. After 40 days. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. 
He said to them, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Right? Restoring the kingdom of Israel is not your business, in essence. God's geopolitical workings in the world are his own business, not yours. But, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? What is this power for? Being his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all and to oh, excuse me, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? Gaul, Germany, Poland, India, the New World. That's where you'll go to the ends of the earth. That you're, this power of the Holy Spirit is to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Right? And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Where did two men in white robes also appear? At the, right, in the grave, the tomb of our Lord, right? And what did the two men at the grave say? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised just as he said. Now the two men standing in white robes. Verse 11, they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Again, fascinating question. Ah, uh, Jesus just said, that's all right. I mean, the question is, is mocking and mildly hilarious because the answer is obvious, right? Why are we looking? Because, right? Why are you looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? Now that's the ascension. So that's the last resurrection appearance of our Lord. I mean, not absolutely. We have the whole history of the saints and all this. Right? He appears to St. Paul, etc. But the last physical, like the physical body of Jesus that you could place your hands on is at the ascension where he commissions them that they will be clothed with... Does he clothe them with power in that moment? No. They have to stay in the city, right? The next passage, chapter 2, is choosing the apostle to take uh, Judas' place. Right? See, but that commissioning is essentially to be his witnesses. Witnesses to us. Everything in the scriptures referred to him that he had to suffer for sins and be crucified and third day be raised and preach forgiveness of sins in his name. Clothed with power to achieve that. Dwelling with the mysteries of God inside the apostolic life of the church who have what? The breaking of the bread which has been established. The power of the Holy Spirit to forgive sins. See, that's established. Divine power to break bread. It's not bread. Divine power to forgive sins is given. The power that clothes them from on high. Now, our Lord Jesus says in John 13, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will, quote, what? 
remind you of all that I told you, and lead you into all truth. That's also very important. The Holy Spirit to be witnesses reminds of all that he said, that's the Gospels, and leads you into all truth. Right? He prefaces it by saying, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of all that I told you and lead you into all truth. So does Jesus tell the apostles all truth? No. The Holy Spirit reminds and leads the body, leads the household of God that must safeguard the mysteries of the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke to them. And that's what that power of the Holy Spirit clothes them to do, to bear witness to that. That is what the Holy Spirit is for. That is what the heart of the Christian vocation is, to bear witness. Now, I want to read a little bit from the second letter of St. Peter. So this is the Apostle St. Peter writing this letter. The letter of Peter is dated somewhere around the year... 47 to 52. Because remember, the, the first, the earliest Christian writing we have that's in the sacred scriptures is 1 Corinthians, right? So, so remember, St. Paul writes things down before ever a gospel is written down. It's very likely the second letter, first letter of Peter were also written before the first gospels were commissioned. So... <clears throat> Simon Peter, this is Peter uh, chapter 1. Let's make sure that I got all the way down. 1, 1 through 15, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Awesome. That's one thing that's very important in Christian vocation. This is St. Peter, right? One of the first chosen, with Jesus from beginning to end, close to Jesus in some of the great moments, Transfiguration, Garden of Gethsemane, given special graces, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and I give to you the keys. We'll talk about in the vocation and papacy next week, right? So on and so forth, right? Saying to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, there's one Lord, one faith. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So you've got faith, now seek understanding. May it be multiplied in you. Let these mysteries unfold in you. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the knowledge of Him who called us to, this, to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His promises and very great ones, that through those you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion 
and become partakers of divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Your virtue with knowledge. Your knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. Right? As a sidebar, that's the recipe of the Christian life. All right? Make every effort. And this is, that, this is that fascinating thing that he says. Make every effort. You are granted faith freely. This is not from you, right? And this is love. Not that you have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son as expiation for our sins. Free gift. Now that you receive the free gift, for this reason, for the reason that you've received the free gift, Make every effort. Because you received the free gift, make every effort. I'm not going to get into the whole dialectic on faith and works. This is one of the many passages where the sola fide argument fails on biblical grounds. Yes, the gift of faith is free. But because you received the gift of faith, make every effort. Okay. If these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a sidebar, I think this is where Bishop Hine got his contemporary phrases, competent and confident. All right? So in ineffective or unfruitful, in ineffective read confident, and in unfruitful read competent. All right? So I think that's where he gets those from. So you don't, want to, you don't want to be that. You don't want to be ineffective or unfruitful. That's not good. For whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Right. So he's saying if you don't supplement your faith, which is the free gift, with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfast and godliness and brotherly affection and love, right? You're forgetting that you were cleansed from your old sins, which is bad. Okay, not true, sorry. That's what it is. It's a forgetting. Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never fall. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I, this is, again, I love this passage. Think of who St. Peter is. And he goes through the rundown of what your power and clothing for, because he's understanding there at the resurrection in that Gospel of St. Luke. He, he opened our minds that the Son of Man had to be suffer for sins. On the third day, rise from the dead. And repentance for forgiveness has to be preached in his name. You're a witness of these things. I'm going to clothe you with power on high. And you're going to be witnesses. The forgiveness of sins preached in my name in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this power and gift is given to you. To every believing Christian. 
Which is why that same Apostle Peter can say, you've got a faith equal with mine. You have the same faith I have. I, the first pope, don't have a special faith that all of you have. I, Father Eric, don't have a different faith from what you have. And my essential witness, right? Because he doesn't say anything here about uh, how to be nice to your wife, how to discipline your kids if you're married, uh, how to preach good sermons. No, this is what we might call in contemporary parlance the universal call to holiness. That's what you might read. We use that. That's a term in use in in modern times. Everybody is called to be holy. And so he says, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I know you know this. I'm going to keep on telling you. Because it is possible, right? And I think St. Peter, we would give him good weight. He knew Christ face to face. He saw the transfiguration. He knows what it is when it gets hard that you might fall away. He knows. He has no vanity to say, I would never do that. Right? He knows. And that's why he's saying, I'm going to always remind you. Even though you already know them. I think it right... This is, chapter, this is verse 13. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to arouse you by way of reminder. Since I know that we're putting off the body, and will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Right? That's why it's dated in the 50s, because St. Peter was martyred in the year 55. So it had to be written, sh- written shortly before that. Now this is my, this is my favorite part of verse And I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, that also connects to the resurrection and the papacy. But I bring this quotation up, yes, because it connects to what we'll talk about next week, but also to remind us that it it is the essential heart of the Christian vocation to bear witness to the gospel by being holy. If you have read the Go Make Disciples document, there is the section, right? Chapter 8. How do we preach the gospel, right? And it has two parts. Be holy and talk about Jesus. Right? That, which is what, this is the apostolic manner, right? Be holy. Supplement your faith, your free gift. Right? And I'm going to remind you. And how is he going to see to it that we're always reminded? This is apostolic succession, right? There's going to be a line of people that that's what they do. And good popes, that's what they super do. I would say the whole life of John Paul II was just trying to use modern language to remind us of these things, right? To especially try to remind a world, especially a Western world, that had either A, forgotten them, or felt they were sophisticated enough to go beyond them. And all he did... You'll write, I mean, I would get my professors all the time who I thought were good-hearted people that missed the point where he's like, I don't know why he's saying this. St. Thomas has already said this, which was frankly true. John Paul II had almost zero original thoughts. I don't mean to question his genius, but his number of original thoughts was virtually zero, and that is eminently to his credit. What he did do was try to find a modern key, a way that modern people would hear that reminder. In a sense, 
That is ultimately the reason why St. Luke doesn't write down every single one of those mysteries of God. Because I have to find the contemporary key to convey it. Does that make sense? Right? And that's why the, the power of the Second Vatican Council, again, I'm not getting into lots of people love to talk about the Second Vatican Council and the various stupidities contained therein, which there are many. But at the heart of that endeavor was to remind, especially a Western world, steeped in two millennia of Christian history that was actively forgetting God, to tell people, look, you can't, you can't reduce vocation to, I'm a married person, I'm a single person, I'm a priest, I'm a monk, I'm a sister. Those are all important. I'm not trying to denude those importances. But if you lose the notion that the power you were given was to be a witness to Jesus, then the rest just doesn't matter. And if in your knowledge you need to be a witness to Jesus, you have to strengthen that faith with steadfastness and knowledge. Right? Notice the first thing, strengthen your faith with Virtue, <laughs> you've got to be good. And virtue with knowledge, right? After you know you've got to be good, know why you've got to be good. And then steadfastness, you've got to be good all the time. Oh, and self-control, that's what's going to be the, the gas pedal that governs it, right? And God, what is God, godliness is another word for devotion. I mean, your life of prayer. In your prayer with brotherly affection, you've got to have friends that help you do this. Can't do it by yourself, right? And then with love, right? And see here, read that circling back, right? Because in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his only son for the expiation, right? So that it circles back to the gift. That, so that's what has to be at the heart. Again, so if... I am a priest who governs his parish well and the budget is nice and I say mass nice and I preach interesting sermons, but I don't have the fundamental understanding that my duty is to preach the gospel, that Christ suffered for sins, rose from the dead, and preached forgiveness of sins in his name, and that because I know that I have to seek holiness, I have to supplement my faith with virtue, and so on and so forth. Then what's it matter? Right? If I'm a married person and I don't, you know, I stay married to my spouse and so on and so forth, but I'm not seeking holiness and witness, I don't do what I can to convey the gospel to my, so on and so forth. And we could go on with all these examples. So that's why I'm saying all other vocation becomes meaningless if you miss the heart of that first vocation, and for Christians to understand that it is ultimately pondered in the resurrection, because the resurrection is what gives the right. That's the only reason why the whole right, the last two chapters of every gospel, all the chapters that come before there, only matter because of the resurrection. Right? If there's right, so what Saint Paul says: If Christ is not dead, then your faith is in vain, and you're still in sins, and we're the most foolish of people. That's why all the Jesus is a nice guy people just blow my mind. All right. 
Jesus manifestly, no person who says, unless you hate your father and mother and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That's not a nice person. Nice people don't say things like that. So they either have to be divinely vindicated because the only one who can command that kind of obedience and not be a psychopath is God. No one else can do that. But see, all of that, all the things Christ asks are validated in the resurrection. And what's the power? Witness to the forgiveness of sins in his name. And then St. Peter gives a reminder, lots of other scriptures do too, the way that, the way that you don't forget that is grow in holiness. Virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, self-control, etc. Okay, I've come to my, yes, please. The gift is faith. Okay. All right. So, but the, the gift of faith includes, right, the gift of faith as such includes the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, right? Because when someone accepts forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, they will receive the gift of faith, right? Baptism is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and that gives you faith. If you were baptized and you forgot the, for, through whatever, through a life of sin, and you have to later be convicted of the forgiveness of sins in the confessional, then your faith is restored. There's beautiful commentaries on whether, right, can mortal sin cause you to lose faith, yay or nay, right? We don't get into, that's a whole, do you lose faith or does it just get like covered over? So does Confession give you back faith, or does it just clean it up? Uh, various theologians have, right? We have that phrase, right? So I lost my faith. Do we, how do we mean that in a technical sense? So that's why we would say the gift is faith, but the, the gift comes when you acknowledge you need forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Questions, comments, concerns, or curiosities? So in this section of the New Testament, the end of Luke, beginning of Acts, before the Holy Spirit has come upon them, do the apostles really get what Jesus is telling them? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. So he's given them the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They clearly know they have to fill out the apostolic college. And you notice the way that they fill out the... Does anyone know how they fill out the apostolic college? They toss lots, all right? It's luck of the draw. And that's been so fascinatingly commented on because, A, there are many references, right? They're in, a, they're in a super great Old Testament line. They're doing what they know. But also, they've not been clothed with power from on high because afterwards, when they're picking apostolic successors, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, etc. They don't cast lots. They pray and pick. So it would seem that they have not this I'm trying to say it in a way that wouldn't be blasphemous or wrong. They know it in their minds, but they haven't been right. They have it here, but they haven't been clothed with it. They haven't with been clothed with power from on high. So before they receive the Holy Spirit, they cast lots. 
It's so fun because it seems like that's a really, here's these two great guys. Let's draw straws and see who gets it. Um, afterwards, they don't do that. It would seem that they have received a power because also they don't go out and about and testify till after Pentecost. Before Pentecost, but they're in the upper room praying with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other holy women. That's what it says in Acts, anyways. It would, it would then suggest that, you know, for us to be true witnesses to Jesus, that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be in a state of grace, right? This gets, in, again, this gets into a, this is a fascinating cultural question, right? So... How does, right, how does God work through the church? Like, here's a famous, Father uh, Marcel Maciel, the founder of the Legions of Christ, converted, thou, I mean, thousands of you had unbelievable conversions and returned to faith uh, through the Legion of Christ and grew, I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I know super awesome, holy people in the Legion. Well, it turned out he was a horrible man. I mean, horrifyingly bad. Awful. So, he himself had somewhere lost, right? He had forgotten what, how St. Peter said. He'd forgotten that he was clothed in Christ. He'd forgotten that. But the power of the Holy Spirit endured in the life of what he had done, right? So when it comes to me individually, like, is it possible that someone could have great natural talents and bring someone to know Jesus? That seems possible. But even if that person only did it on the power of natural talent, the person who receives forgiveness of sin and might not have those same natural talents would be clothed in Christ, right? Cardinal McCarrick converted a lot of people authentically. I mean, I mean they did. I mean, there are people who just heard his sermons or he counseled individually who they're good, solid, orthodox, believing Christians. He was obviously a scandalous man. I don't mean, I only, the saints are better endeavors of this, but that's where we have to understand there is true power in this. There is when you acknowledge the forgiveness of sins, you are in the power of God. Now I'd always say, if you want this to endure, if you want it to remain, if you want it to be ultimately fruitful, that's why St. Francis is greater than Father Maciel. Because guess what? St. Francis also converted a lot of people and was a holy person. And St. Jose Maria converted a lot of people and was a holy person. And Mother Teresa converted a lot of people and was a holy person. But what the power is, the power is if I can get someone to acknowledge forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We would have to say from Christian history, that's what God blesses. That's why it's the duty to remind us to live a holy life so that never gets lost, that we never just become institution builders or culture builders, right? This is where the redemption of culture is such a fascinating point. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? You don't get to know that. That, but mm, who cares? You're clothed on power to preach forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And if that shifts the tides of culture, then it does. So you're not called to shift the tides of culture and institution build. Presumably, if you convince a lot of people of the name of Jesus, they will shift the tide of culture and institution build. Right? Does that make sense? 
If I get two people to believe in Jesus, we'll have a thing. If I get 500 people to believe in Jesus, they're going to say, let's get together and have a place to meet. Institution build. And then all of a sudden, those 500 people in a village of 1,000, the local people say, what should we all do about X? Well, these 500 people will say, we should do this. That's culture shifting. Does that make sense? But I don't start out saying, I want a culture shift. I want to achieve this geopolitical end. So therefore, I need to recruit this many people. That's not what I have power to do. What I have power to do... So that's why I would say even someone who is not in a state of grace, if they are trying the level best to, to get someone to be convicted of redemption in Jesus' name, all power is there. Does that make sense? Doing it when you're holy is the... Right, that's why we make stained glass windows of the saints. See? They did that same thing that you're supposed to do in a high integral way. So following up on that mm-hmm. exact point, say you have relatives, not just your friends, relatives, who have just pretty much clothed themselves in, you know, a sad life, off the path to God, raised in the faith, and I mean, there's so many of these out there, and I've talked to some people have too, and then they, ha- they are not in a state of grace. There's many mortal sins and compounded with things, Basically, good people who are doing nothing to save their souls. Right. And they, they say to you, why do you have so much joy? And of course, you tell them, well, I believe in God. I have a husband. You know, I have a kid. That kind of thing. But... <laughs> Got a great husband. Yeah. He was here. I had to say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I've always thought, every time I get hit with these questions, it's like, okay, what is the first thing I can say that will have anything at all in the morass that they're in at that moment? You know, assuming I'm going to say, I mean... It's so hard to know. I can't say come to church because they won't. Right. Come to church. Again, that's what I've said a couple times. You don't want your kids and grandkids to go to church. You want your kids and grandkids to believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the only Son of God who gives perfect adoration to the Heavenly Father. That's, you, you know, and it's, the, it's the Savior of your life. Because then they'll I mean, go to church is the natural effect of that. That's why I said, don't imagine first a church full of people. Imagine everyone in the church being confident and competent in conveying Jesus Christ suffered for sins, rose from the dead, and you can have forgiveness of sin in his name. Now again, it's about stating that in a modern key. Because what do you do with a culture that rejects that phraseology as such? You know, that's for holy rollers and all of this. Now, two things on that. The basic proclamation always has power. You know this. The name of Jesus said with faith makes people react. Right? Now, all different kinds of ways, but it makes them react. And when you say it within a holy life, I'm reading this novel uh, by the French author George Bernanos, who's somewhat well-known. Uh, this is a lesser-known novel. He's very famous from the novel A Diary of a Country Priest. I'm reading his novel called Under the Sun of Satan. And it's in three parts. And the middle part is this dialogue between an elderly priest who's near the end of his days, 
in the pastor's parish forever, and a newly ordained priest. Both have faith. Both love the Lord. Both want souls to know the Lord. The elderly priest feels regret in his life because those he's lived a goodly life and is, and is well respected, he feels that's all that's happened is he leaves a goodly life and is well respected and somehow there's a... And he requests this young associate that no one else wanted because he's not very bright, he didn't do well academically in seminary and is riddled with self-consciousness. And there's a moment where the two come together. Like, so this young priest in the novel, all right, he asks the pastor to not have him preach sermons because he can't. He gets in the pulpit and gets nervous and can't talk. The pastor can't have him hear confessions anymore because he gets so freaked out and nervous. He doesn't say even the words of absolution. So it all comes to this summit where they have basically this interaction. I'm reducing it where the, the pastor is, you know, the, the young priest is saying, I, Father, pastor, I think you think I'm a nut. And the pastor is saying, I think you think I'm just lazy and diffident. And they have a real unveiling of each other. And it finds out that that young priest was doing extreme penances because he was so real that he felt he had to do all these extreme penances, the pastor challenges him all right, to live an ordered spiritual life. And again, to make a long story short, all of a sudden this young priest, who still lives a very ordered life, all of a sudden his words have great effect. He gets in the pulpit and the pastor realizes he's not saying anything profound, but it moves people. He gets into the confession and, right, because he's not, he's acknowledging the gift, right? In the novel, it's addressing it, what's called Pelagianism. Pelagianism is that heresy that says you must earn salvation. So you he the young priest acknowledges the gift in faith and then starts to, instead of, because notice what St. Peter doesn't say, supplement your faith with penance, right? Supplement your faith with suffering. Those, now again, St. Peter's where they come. Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with not. So he starts to do that and has this. There's this famous line where one of the parishioners say, it says, it's as though when he says the name of God, it's being thundered out of the highest heavens, right? So the point I'm trying to make is if you strive to live a holy life and say the basic gospel narrative, why are you so happy? Because I know that Jesus Christ died for my sins and lives for my glory, and I have redemption in his name. That's why I'm happy. That has power. That has power. There's also, all right, the intellectual side of that. Because again, we are in a culture that has had this for centuries and centuries and centuries, all right? And it's in the great biblical icon of the contemporary age is Pontius Pilate, what is truth? You know? And so trying to become sophisticated and talking about these things having your mind opened, supplementing your faith 
with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and so on and so it becomes the great task. I don't know if that addressed your question indirectly because, yes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want it to be unfruitful. So you're ineffective and unfruitful because you don't do these things. And we want to be effective and fruitful. And love God back, right? Yeah, it is, it is presumed that if we live good lives, people will find that attractive generally speaking. That's one of the reasons why I find this novel so interesting because you see, the two, you see sort of like amongst these, they have other chapters about a young person, about a married couple trying to do the same thing. How do we effectively witness to the gospel in contemporary culture? How much of it is living a good, orderly, refined life? All right? Because it's, right, remember faith and love bookend those things. It's the resurrection of, it's wondereth with joy. And then opening the mind. I don't know why I do this with open, not feeling your head over right. But see, it's the, it's in a sense, it's an attention of these two things. It's wondrous joy. Here, handle me. Come to the altar in love. Sing and weep at the name of Jesus, wondering for joy. Do that. And of course, that will move people. But then there's also the opening of the mind. In the dialectic of St. Peter, faith is at the beginning, love is at the end. Remember, faith and love are the two theological virtues of hope connected together. And then all these things in the middle. If you do all these things in the middle but don't have the bookends, what good is it really? But if you only have the two bookends but don't do anything in the middle, you could go all kinds of wackadoodle places, right? I mean, I think that's the argument. Why is there so much madness in the Christian life and in the Christian church? I would argue because there's a lot of people who have the faith and love part thing and are not doing so great in the middle. And then I think there's a lot of church-going people who do the stuff in the middle and believe the food's two part, but they, that's not at the foremost of their mind. All the stuff, like I said, I think the beautiful tension in this novel is the young priest has the two bookends, but none of the middle, and he does wild stuff, and it doesn't work out real well. And the old priest has the middle, but is, hasn't denied the two bookends, doesn't really possess them. And the two of them together help them both integrate it. And that's, that's the call to holiness. That's resurrected life. That's uh, St. Paul at the synagogue preaching Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. He is the Savior promised by Israel under forgiveness of sins. You crucified him by lawless men. God raised him from the dead. That's just direct witness. You see that same Apostle Paul in Athens at the Areopagus. Oh, I see you here. You are very religious people. And I see you have an altar to an unknown God. This is the God I talked to you about. And then he quotes a Greek pagan poem. Right? So he's, he's being winsome. He's being, 
He's saying, if, if I say, this is the Messiah promised by Isaiah, they're going to look at me and say, what are you taught? What? All right. But he, oh, you're all very religious. All these gods you have, which I'll think are Bashan nonsense, all right? So to the Jews, these are all pagans and heathens, and we have the Messiah. He says, oh, you're all very religious. And it's about this God that I tell you about. The maker who the heavens and earth cannot contain sent his own son, Jesus, who rose, right? So that's, but notice that they're doing same person taking two methodologies that arrive at the exact same spot. This Jesus crucified rose from the dead, right? St. Paul didn't have great success either one. Then Troas, they threw him out of the synagogue, except for a couple of people. And in Athens, they basically, uh, we'll hear you another day. All right, it's the great, wonderful. All right, uh, let's go have a kebab and enough of the, right? That's, that's what happens in both those instances. But it's, it's testament to us. It's, and this is a little bit, this is again, to get to the vocation part, this is why I want people to read the Go Make Disciples document because it's really trying to put that phraseology of the proclamation of the kerygma, right? The good news. So like if I said to any church, go, this is what, this is going to be real goal by November, any church going Catholic, if I could say, tell me the good news, you could do it in five sentences or less. Tell me the gospel. Because you have power to do it. Right? You have an anointing. You have grace. And if you're in a state of grace, you super have power to do it. But if your mind's not open at all, And again, we shouldn't be too distressed about this because the apostles themselves seem to have forgotten about it. Remember all the things I told you while I was with you? No. Then I will tell you. So does that, the rhythm of the Christian vocation is, and again, whether you're a priest or whether you're a brother or a sister, whether you're married, whether you're single, whatever, you, whether you've been married for two years or 52 years, Right, that's what becomes at the heart of it. Yes, it is true. We got used to this being passed down via osmosis. You know, we basically did this, and our grandparents did it, and their grandparents did it, and our neighbors did it, and the nuns at the school did it, and the past, you know, it was all just kind of there. We're used to living in that ethos. Fulton Sheen and Billy Graham tried to wake us up to a bit and did it with middling. They're awesome. They're both great. I mean, Billy Graham holds a couple of theological errors, but whatever. God judges, not me. Right? He was clearly trying to... Billy Graham... Why does Billy Graham at the end of his life say the Christian in the world he most admires is John Paul II? Right? Why does he say that? Because he realizes what he's trying to do. Fulton Sheen and Billy Graham were rough contemporaries. They were both trying to wake up our part of the world. You can't do this by osmosis anymore, people. There is a Christian vocation tied to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that is beyond institution and structure. 
And that's what you have to testify to. So you don't so much have to testify, you really should enroll your kid in faith formation. Now in your winsome mind, you might say to yourself, I can convince them to get their kid into faith formation. And then when I got their kid, try to convict their kid in the gospel. Because this person is too busy going bowling and drinking. But if I, right? That's what I did. My very first assignment. This is why I love Catholic schools. I love Catholic schools because they're a highway to mom and dad. Parents who didn't darken the door of a church and wanted nothing to me, it's a lot easier to get their kids to fall in love with me and tell them they should love the gospel. And then guess what the little buggers do? Mommy, we should have Father Eric over for dinner. Daddy, and they go on and on and on and on and on, and the parents just want their kids to shut up, and next thing you know, I'm in their kitchen sitting at their dining room table. Right. So that's, you all can find a way to do that to people in your life, to, right, different pathway than I can do, but trying to find a way to convict them. But again, my ultimate goal is not to make sure they enroll for the next year, make sure they pay their tuition. I mean, I do want them to enroll for the next year. Yes, we need them to pay their tuition on time, or that's going to get tough. But that's not my goal. That's not what God has given me power to do. My training, my intellectual example, might make me better talking about finance. might be really good at getting money out of your pocket. Like, I might have that gift. That's where we get into the world of charisms, which we're not talking about right now. People have gifts to do things. But that's not power. Power is to testify to the gospel. Okay. Any other questions we're coming on that we're at? We're not coming to pass hill. Coming up on Pentecost mm. in terms of being both in the Holy Spirit, that power, calling on power, any particular devotions or things we can do to help that? We have the Novita to the Holy Spirit coming up, for example. I think to keep in the spiritual life, right? Godly. Yeah. No, go ahead. The, the Novena to the Holy Spirit starts on Friday. Or the Novena to Pentecost, I should say. That fits in the godliness character category of how you strengthen your faith. Godliness is that. What you just have to really be reminded is you have this power. All right? We are going to celebrate Pentecost. It's not Pentecost all over again. All right? This is my own beef. All this nonsense about a new Pentecost, a Senate Pentecost, is a lot of hoo-ha. It, frankly, it's blasphemy. Talking about a new Pentecost is blasphemy. Why? Pentecost is a divine act. It is, as the second person of the Blessed Trinity, did I make Jesus, right? We're having a new Christmas. And no one talks like that. It's stupid, right? Because that's a divine act. Is, do I tell God what to do? No. So stop with all this new Pentecost, all this, all right, all this Church of the New Advent. What in God's name is that even? Are you talking about? As we, it's, it's like the prayer. We liturgically remember to, to, to have people that annual reminder, right? That annual cycle. This is what you have power to do. Again, sidebar rant. This is why we have to reform the liturgical calendar because forever and ever and ever, it was Pentecost Sunday. And then we had the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday after Pentecost. To remind everybody this is what you're supposed to do, right? Fifth Sunday in ordinary time. What the hell does that even mean? All right. At Christmas, it was, because remember, at first Christmas, it was first Sunday after the Epiphany, second Sunday after the Epiphany, third, why the Epiphany? The Epiphany is when what? 
God reveals himself to the nations, the, the magi and the baptism. It's the witness of Christ. So we have the witness of Christ, the witness of Christ. All right, now we're going to do penance because the church has done that forever so we don't get too high on ourselves and whatnot. And then it's Easter and then it's after Pentecost, after Pentecost, after Pentecost. So my point I'm trying to make is the church never wanted to reduce it to a day or a devotion. It ordered... Sorry about my rant. I mean, I'm going to say the whatever Sunday morning. Fine, fine. All right. But don't look for a new Pentecost, all this other nonsense. Know you have the power. If you are baptized, if you need to have that validated to you, call. they'll give you a little document saying, right, and confirmed, then you have the power. You need virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and uh, godliness and brotherly affection and love. That's what you need to do. And then you can give witness to Jesus. And if you're just kind of ham-fisted at it, just say it. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, so you don't have to bear it no more, anymore. And if you can say, Jesus, I trust in you, you're nine-tenths of the way there. And if you're baptized, unlocking all that is just a whisper away. It's just, it's right there. And you can do it. Acknowledging, we live in a cultural moment where the simple proclamation is easily mocked and derided and contradicted. So it might behoove you to become winsome and intelligent about your faith as well in case someone goes, how do we know that even happened? Oh. I read this book called The Case for Jesus, and I can tell you how to read this. Right. Or more, hey, yeah, let's get a coffee at the hipster coffee house, because that's the thing. And, right. I will drink beer with you if you let me talk to you about this for 10 minutes. Right. Come to my house, because in my house, I can do whatever I want. You can get up and leave, but in my house, I can do what I like. But you really like my deck, and my Miller High Life, so you would come over. All right, enough silliness. Right? You like music and being in the choir, you like all that kind of stuff. All at the university converted tons of people through the choir. Tons. They didn't give one rip about Jesus. They just found general pop music boring and puerile, because it is, and liked to sing. And here are nice people. And all those nice people witness and talk about Jesus, and eventually they convert. Same thing with Bible studies and small groups, right? That's the whole point of the small group apostolate. Come back to church with all these hundreds of people who sit in the and stand. I don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah. Right, this, this good-hearted guy, Molly knows this good-hearted guy we had show up. I mean, this dude was a mess, fair to say, just a mess. And an emotional state... But someone waved at him coming into church. He felt invited, came in, ended up talking to a believing Christian and talking to a priest. Is that the whole show? No, it isn't. Is that what evangelization is? Yeah. So when he says to me, I don't know why I came in here today. I say, I know why you did. Why? I said, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and loves your soul. Now, is he going to believe that? We'll see. But that's how it and somebody with assumably a friendly face waved, was friendly, 
We'll see. But that's how these things go. All right, I'm getting sermonistic. I'm sorry. Anything else? We're at, we're at eight minutes past. All right, we'll finish. If you want to stay and talk more, that's fine. Otherwise, we'll be respectfully beyond with the rest of the night. Uh, next week, the vocation in uh, uh, the papacy is part of power. Right? In the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I did tape it.